Well, good morning, Applewood family. It is a good morning. Just in case you wondered. Because as we have been singing, God is on His throne. And sometimes things look contrary to that truth, don't they? Uh, (laughs) Just about every day of our lives. But thankfully, uh, what we see and sometimes, or maybe more often than not, what we think is not necessarily the reality of our God, who He is and what He is doing. Let's pray together, God, we gather before You, have sung Your praises, we want to hear Your Word, recognizing that we bring with us into this hour just all kinds of clutter. Our lives are filled with clutter. and Some of that clutter is really important to us. And a lot of that clutter is really not all that significant, but nonetheless, it's a part of our lives. And so we thank you that as we come into this place this morning, you know us well. You know the things that are tugging at our hearts and weighing on our minds. You know the things that are going on in our world that cause us pain. And, oh, you know the, the storms that are, that are blowing in off of the coast and the wars that are happening in countries and the families that are being torn to pieces and lives that are lost and places that people call home that no longer exist so often after a huge tragedy. So we ask that those things that, that stir in us and for the emotions that we feel as a result of those things, would you, would you meet us in this place this morning? Would you probe our hearts and our minds and Holy Spirit, would you remind us through the truth of your word that that God really is on His throne. And despite so much of what appears to the contrary, He rules. And He is moving history towards that final day according to His plan. And may that not only give us great comfort, but may it spur in us an urgency to live with abandonment for King Jesus and to live our lives in such a way that others will want to follow our King as well. We ask in His name. Amen. Amen. I read a great story this week, a wonderful story that I just have to share with you. About a successful businessman, his name was Stan Telkin, a Jewish businessman. One very surprising day, his 21-year-old daughter, her name is Judy, called home from college to say these dreaded words. I believe Jesus is the Messiah. Stan says he felt betrayed. And his daughter's conversion caused the family to kind of go into this state of philosophical chaos. In an effort to prove his daughter wrong, Stan began an energetic truth for the quest. For, excuse me, quest for the truth. Can't read. 
And the search for answers began to affect his wife, Ethel, and their other daughter, Anne. And they were all sort of angered and perplexed, but curious about Judy's radically transformed behavior as a result of this profession of faith. So when the process began to create friction between Stan and his wife, they both agreed that they should pursue their search independent of one another. So some months later, Stan accepted an invitation to attend a national convocation of Messianic Jews. Doesn't say how that happened, but there he went. And he planned to, quote, work the convention just like he was used to doing at business meetings. He said, I needed to meet with anyone who thought I could help me, always probing for more information. So after several meetings, it's one night, Stan is laying awake in his bed. He can't sleep. He's thinking about this journey that he's on. He knew he was at a point of crisis. If the Bible was true, and he had concluded that it was, then he really did believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he also admitted to himself that he believed in the Bible as God's inspired word, but he couldn't quite say those words to himself, Jesus is the Messiah. So he asked his roommate, who happened to be awake, to pray for him. His roommate did, and he prayed simply, God, would you give Stan your peace and resolve his inner conflict? Done. The next morning, at breakfast, one of the men at Stan's table asked him to pray before the meal. Startled by the request, Stan bowed his head and prayed. Praised be you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. I thank you for the fellowship and the friendship at this table. I thank you for what we've learned here. And I ask you now to bless this food, and I do so in the name of Jesus the Messiah. For a moment, he sat there. He says, I was amazed at what I just prayed. It had not been planned. But there were others at the table who didn't miss it. Their faces were suddenly jubilant. Stan, said one of them, you're a believer? And one by one, they each got up from their seats. They began hugging him, and some of them cried with joy. He says, Stan began to weep as well. But he wasn't sure how his wife was going to take the news. He just had to call her. So instead of his carefully crafted speech, he just blurted out, Ethel, honey, it's me. It's over. I've made my decision. Jesus is the Messiah. He says there was a long pause on the other end of the line. Stan's holding his breath. And then his wife's voice came back. And softly she said, Thank God. That makes it unanimous. We've all been waiting for you. <laughs> is that wonderful? So... Just go ahead and speak it out. What comes to mind when you hear that phrase, Jesus the Messiah? Word association. What pops in your head? Jesus the Messiah. The anointed one. Salvation. Christ. King. Yeah. Say again. The Son of God. All kinds of of good associations that we make with the Messiah. That is not true for everyone. You know, depending on a person's background, depending on how they've been raised, depending on where they find themselves living in the world, uh, that, that word Messiah can mean a lot of things.
the word that we translate, a couple of you mentioned it, finds its oldest and its truest meaning in the ancient Hebrew in the Old Testament. It does mean anointed one. And throughout the Old Testament, the idea or the promise of Messiah is one who comes from God, one who is anointed by God for a very specific purpose. Someone who comes to do something related to rescue, restoration, blessing, all on behalf of the people of God. And the theme of Messiah, or the idea of messianic hope, some of you know this, shows up as early in Scripture as Genesis chapter 3. Remember shortly after Adam and Eve had disobeyed by believing the lies of the snake, Satan, God says to Satan, I will put enmity... That word means hostility. It's, it's an active opposition between opposing parties. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That is understood to, to be the earliest messianic promise or, or mention of messianic hope in Scripture. Genesis 12, words of promise from God to Abram. Father of the Israelite nation, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then then Paul in Galatians 3 interprets those words as a reference to Christ, the promise of his coming. And he uses the Greek word Christos, which means anointed. And so then it's interesting to kind of follow the the, the messianic theme through Scripture as it it begins to, to grow And we see it inevitably be linked to sort of a more political environment, if I can say it that way. Especially prevalent as things in in Israel begin to to unravel. The kingdoms were dividing, kingdoms were falling. And and from what I have read, for, for many in Israel today that still believe in Messiah, and many in Israel do not believe in Messiah, and they, they link it to a sort of world political theme that really kind of shapes that, that hope. The idea that Messiah will make the world a better place, with Israel being at the top of the political sociological ladder. There's a magazine by the name of Moment. It's a Jewish magazine. It asked a number of Jewish writers, professors, rabbis, artists, actors, this question, what does the concept of the Messiah mean today? And here are just some of the responses. Who at different times in their life hasn't had a belief that someone, a Messiah, can help them and, and help the world? And the Messiah is the biggest answer to the biggest single question, does God care about me? Another person's response was, people have stopped believing in God, in the possibility of miracles, in the mystical and in that most mystical belief of all, the idea that somebody's going to come along and make the world all better. I think that that's a sad development of the modern world. Another says the Messiah doesn't connote that some entity, deity, or event will suddenly arrive and change the circumstances in our lives. That's a notion of childhood wish fulfillment. One person said this, for most Jews, the Messianic idea has receded. It's not on the top of the agenda. And they don't see history as inexorably moving toward that day. 
So this morning, we're going to wrap up our psalm study with a quick look at a messianic psalm, or, or I should say, technically, a, a partially messianic psalm. Uh, we've looked at the different categories of psalms, uh, the ancient book, the worship book of Israel, and I've suggested to you that, that each type that we've looked at can really enrich our daily worship of God because in the psalms, human emotion are just put on display. They are, they are loud and clear. And those emotions can really factor into our worship of God. The joy that comes with the praise and thanksgiving psalms, there are plenty of those. The honor and the importance of exalting God as king, and we've found that to be a strong theme in the, the royal or the enthronement psalms. You remember the, the raw and honest emotions? Anger, hurt, confusion, doubt, questioning that we found in both the imprecatory psalms, calling down curses on someone or some people group, and the lament psalms, you know, the, the, the ache of our hearts for where we find ourselves in life. And each type of psalm, I, I hope you have, have come to that place where you, you recognize that they're important to us for many reasons, but, but two that just jump out is the psalms remind us that God created us for Him, God wasn't created for us. God created us for Him. And it's His desire, His intent, that we be at the center, that, that, that He, excuse me, be at the center of, of our lives, all of our experiences, all of our relationships. We need to be intentional about recognizing His presence. The Psalms, I think, in, encourage us in that. Even, even in those, those times when Life is so dark. Those moments when we feel like God is so far away. The Psalms recognize the truth of those experiences, that that is a reality of being human, even a redeemed human, and they encourage us to, to take all of that right back to the God who is over all of life. And the second thing I think that they do for us that's so important is they encourage us to live honestly and authentically in the relationship that we have with God. Which, of course, we know in our theological heads is a privilege that is made possible through Jesus. And if you forget everything else that we've learned in this series, just remember this one thing that we have such a blessed privilege of, of taking the lens of the life of Jesus and reading the Psalms through that. Reading the Psalms and looking for Jesus. Reading the Psalms and allowing Jesus and his revelation to us of the character and nature of God to interpret Psalms for us. There are truths we have about God that the psalm writers didn't have. And we're going to see that again this morning in Psalm 2. It's a call to worship God as the king, because there's a lot of royal psalm that's embedded in it. But, 
But it's also a messianic psalm. It's a clear reference to Jesus. And again, I would say that for us, we can, we can lay over the messianic words what we know about Jesus because I honestly think that these are things that, that the writer, in this case probably David, uh, would not have known. So, let's stand together. Read from Psalm 2, and then we're going to look at just a couple of truths that I think uh, just wonderfully prepare us for coming to the table of our Lord this morning. So here we go with the psalmist in Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. My sisters and my brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Be seated. All right. Little historical context. This psalm probably was written somewhere in the vicinity of the 9th or 10th century BC. Um, we're pretty confident that David was the author because the book of Acts gives him credit for these words. David is probably ruling over a united kingdom or if it wasn't David who was ruling, it would have been Saul who David often referred to as God's anointed and David may have been anointed by Samuel prior to the writing of this psalm. What we know about that era is that it seemed to be a pretty prosperous, for the most part, peaceful time. There were, there were skirmishes with the Philistines, but there was no huge division in the country. It was, it was not a divided kingdom yet. They, they were united as the people of Israel. So, Karen, if we can put that next slide up. You're good, Karen. Thank you. Okay. These are the first verses that we read together. Why do the nations aspire and the people's plot in vain? The kingdoms of the earth, kings of the earth, excuse me, rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed ones, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. So, talk to your neighbor about this. What do you hear in these words about God and his rule in the world? And who do you think is the anointed one to whom David refers? 
See what your neighbor thinks. A couple of minutes. Okay, we ready? No. <laughs> Gotta be sorry. <laughs> what do you think? Who wants to uh, start us off? Give us a response here. What do you hear in these words about God and his rule in the world? What's, what's the psalmist think? Dixie? <laughs> okay. Yeah, that sounds pretty clear, doesn't it? Standing against God is, is futile. What else? What else do you hear? Okay. The anointed one. Oh, so you are reading a spiritual truth into the psalm. The anointed one is Jesus. They need to throw off the, sh the chains and the shackles of their sin and find freedom in Jesus. Now, I like that. The psalmist wouldn't have had a clue about any of that. <laughs> but I like that. And because we get to read the psalms with the lens of Jesus, we can, we can pull some of those truths out that that we understand in the bigger theological picture of salvation are, are rightly so. <laughs> David had divine inspiration. You're right, he did. Ah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Right. Yep. There's that feudal piece again. Okay, okay. Yeah. And I think, I think most importantly, or most honestly, we need to understand that the people of Israel wouldn't have been, at least not at this point as a whole, the people who were conspiring against God. They were the people of God. So these are words that are expressed by someone who is a follower of Yahweh, David, as far as we know. And he looks around at the world and he just can't understand why the people of the world with whom he has known or those foreigners in their midst can't submit their lives to God and his law. That would be, I think, an honest uh, interpretation of, of what that means. But there is no doubt that, that the writer of the Psalms sees that God's rule over the world is, is a given. And the anointed one, who David wouldn't have seen or understood as Jesus, would have been understood to perhaps, if it's David writing the psalm himself, God's anointed one as king, or if it was Saul whom I said earlier, David often referred to Saul as his anointed one, who was hit and miss in terms of his faithfulness to God and his effectively carrying out his role of God's anointed one. But that anointed one would have been a human being in the historical context, so that God's instrument is a human being who's going to bring about a rule of obedience to God in the world. Now, that's a huge problem. Yes? 
because there's something resident in every human heart, and some of you have expressed that, that does not want to be told what to do. Don't tell me this is how I have to live my life, because that's not how I want to live my life. I have this clear image of my son Jeremy at about three years old, running down the hallway with his fist in the air, crying out, No! In response to something that he'd been told he had to do, or that he shouldn't do. That's a picture of humanity. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. But, as I've said many times, probably ad nauseum, we're made by God for God. And as much as we might think that we are, you know, these, these vast collection of, of wise people and, and wisdom for life, we don't know more than the one who created us for himself. Some commentators feel that it's always best to, to read Psalm 1 and 2 together. You remember Psalm 1 that, that espouses just the blessings of the person who lives according to God's law and doesn't associate with sinners and scoffers, uh, but delights in the law of the Lord. It's a picture of this blessing that comes from God. Psalm 2 then is the other side of that coin, uh, the inevitable end of those who choose to live otherwise. There is a right way to live and a wrong way to live, and that truth simply does not sit well with many a human heart. Um, and we know that. And so did the Israelites, called to be the people of God in a very pagan and, and hostile world. They were commanded to live by a different standard than the rest of the nations and the people groups around them. And they were to live according to the laws of God so that, so that God's blessing would be upon them. And as a result, nations would wonder at the greatness of Israel's God and perhaps even be drawn to him. Thus the expression of, of amazement in these verses. Why, why do these people insist on living life their own way? Why do these people constantly strive to throw off the chains and the fetters that, that God uses to capture the hearts of people for himself. Chains and fetters were instruments that were used then to, to keep animals from, from hurting themselves. The psalmist is suggesting, as Lee mentioned, that the, that the laws and the commands of God were, were fetters set for people's good and safety and blessing. They're not a bondage from which to be set free. And so we live... I think we live in a, in a culture that worships personal freedom. Do we not? I mean, let's be honest. We're a nation founded in rebellion. I know that that's offensive, but, but we are. Give me liberty or give me death. And in our modern culture, the rallying cry is often, give me liberty and everything else that I deem necessary for personal happiness. And to that rebellious spirit, the psalm offers the response and the warning. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, he scoffs at them, he rebukes them, and his anger terrifies them, and his wrath. It's a message that, that says ultimately that, that God, God wins. It's, he does. Now it's possible that, that we may not like the psalmist's choice of words here. 
They're not necessarily favorites of mine. It sounds a little bit like, you know, an earthly king staring down his opponent. But, but the image of God laughing and scoffing is intended to clearly communicate the message that God's power is great and his position is secure. You know, nobody gets to, to vote on his reign. And, and personally, I, I, I love the, the image of that response for the reason that it, it gives confidence to us, can give confidence to us as God's people as we live in an increasingly difficult world where God is enthroned in his heaven, which, by the way, is not an image of far away, but of, of, of clear oversight. doesn't mean that he's far and distant. It means that he's in control, and he's nearby, and he rules in in every way. So verse 7 and 8 capture a vivid picture of the Messiah that, that I really do think needs to be read through the lens of Jesus. It's certainly talking about the final rule of the Messiah, which is still in the future, referred to sometimes as the millennial or messianic kingdom. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. The Israelites would have heard that as God's judgment through his human anointed one upon the people of the earth those who do not submit to the rule of Yahweh. And most likely, they were counting on it sooner than later. And so the Messianic hope was that kind of a hope that grew through the centuries. And aren't there times in our lives when we think that that kingdom can't come soon enough? Like, oh, please, Lord, could it, could it be soon? I can't remember as a kid. I didn't want the kingdom of God to come before I got my driver's license. <laughs> and, and then I, I didn't want it to come before I got a chance to go to college. I didn't want it to come before I got married. I didn't want it to come before I got kids. Although there can be times after kids when you think, oh, it should have come. Because, <laughs> wow, this is hard. <laughs> Kelsey, what do you think? <laughs> Most often not. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, come. Yes, Lord, come and make things right, please. But, but here's where I think that lens of Jesus needs to, to be laid over those words... We recognize them as, yeah, there, there is that futuristic sense of when God rolls up the scroll of history and Jesus is going to come and make things right. But before that day comes, there are many, many people who need to be made right. So an important question that I think we must ask ourselves is whether or not our lives Give witness to what we believe. Are we living? Am I living? Are you living in such a way that those who know us know that we believe this truth, that life lived for God brings the reward of life with God. And those that choose not to 
will face life without God. Life separated from God. An eternal sense of being separated from God. Which brings us to the warning language, therefore you kings be wise, you people be wise, you friends be wise, be warned, serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the sun or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. The Israelites would have understood kiss the sun as an exhortation to surrender to the king. There's evidence in some of the early literature that, that kings sometimes thought of themselves as, as sons of God. So to kiss the sun would be to, to be a person who is showing honor to God's anointed one, kissing the ring finger or, or kissing his feet. But for those of us who live on this side of the cross, we, we include in this ancient pre-Jesus psalm a warning that, that takes on special meaning. We can read into it those words from Hebrews about the sun being the divine radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's being. John the Apostle, his words, that God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus' own words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And a whole lot more for us. The Son, we understand in a theological language, is Jesus. Kiss the Son. Surrender to the Son. That becomes a message of urgency in our lives as we live surrendered to the Son. So, let me ask you, when you come to the table this morning, to remember the Son, the eternal Son of God, God become human, God who gave Himself for lost and broken humanity, something that the psalmist would have never dreamed of, something so outrageous. Do we, who are so familiar with these things, do we come with a sense of awe? that we serve a God who revealed Himself most clearly in His Son. God become flesh for the anointed purpose of saving lost and broken people. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you this morning as you prepare your hearts and your thoughts to come and share in this gathering which belongs to the people of God for centuries in the life of the church, ask the Spirit to grow in you this morning and each day a sense of, wow, that God would do this for me. Jesus the Anointed One, that was His purpose, designated by God for coming to the there's a lot of other great things that we enjoy as a result of that event. But the purpose of that event was to save lost and broken people. Amen.